For the week of December 1st, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast Week in Review. This week, Flynn flips, the GOP tax bill gets triggered, and Dino Rossi gets trumped. How's that for a billboard? Uh, I am your host, Stephen Cox. I am joined this week by founder of Indivisible Washington's 8th District, Chris Petzold. Hello, Chris. Happy Flynn Indictment Friday. It is a Flynn Friday, and happy uh, Flynn Indictment Friday to you as well. And also, we are joined by the Democratic Party Chair of Washington's 8th Congressional District, Joshua Troopin. Hello, Josh. Hello. I have no uh, witty intros. That's fine. I, I I was kind of wondering what one gives on Flynn Indictment Friday, but uh, I, I'm hoping that it's the restoration of our uh, constitutional process in our country. Does that sound good? Love it. Yeah. All right. So look, you guys, uh, it, it, it was neck and neck as to where we were going to start this week. Um, both the tax scam and the Flynn story are both so ripe. Uh, so I, I flipped a coin uh, before we started and uh, we're going to we're going to start with Flynn. So as the world now knows, Trump's former national security advisor, or as Fox News is hilariously referring to him, an Obama official, uh, General Michael Flynn has pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI and has agreed to fully cooperate with Robert. Mueller's investigation, meaning he will testify under oath that Trump, along with Trump family members, uh, most likely Jared Kushner there, as well as other White House transition officials, directed him to make contact with the Russian government. So I guess the question is, is this the moment that we get to hit the John Oliver, we got him banner? Uh, the stock market took a tumble, meaning that investors are fearing some possible instability. Uh, Chris is is this the beginning of the end here? We've, we've been here before, but maybe not quite to this degree before. How, how optimistic are you right now? I'm closer to optimistic than I was before. I'm a little bit re- reticent anymore. I mean, nothing surprises me these days. Yeah. Um, the cynicism is pretty, pretty embedded in me. Uh, however, um, I have been pushing for impeachment for months now, and um, I suspect that uh, others may be getting closer as well. And hopefully now that you know, the GOP gets their tax reform thing through today. Um, they can let Trump go and go ahead and impeach him. That's what I hope. Well, you know, it's funny because we've we've kind of talked about that dynamic before. I think that was actually the very first show that we did where we said, you know, the GOP may cut him loose no matter what. If they get it, he's useless to them. And if they don't get it, he's useless to them. But um, in terms of where we're at with Flynn and his indictment and getting ready to testify against Trump, Josh, how are you reading all of this? Well, I, I would like to note that in my lifetime, we have seen 10 presidential administrations and the Republicans have had 120 indictments and 89 convictions out of the executive branch. The Democrats have had three indictments and one conviction out of the executive branch. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank um, you for so keeping score. Is, I appreciate that. So I don't know if this counts because this all uh, comes from transition activities. But uh, I think it's a good sign, again, that Mueller's work is not just for show and saying, yeah, we looked into this and didn't find anything. He's still quite clearly climbing the ladder uh, using plea bargains and pressure on Manafort and Flynn. But so Flynn saw the risk of his son being in additional legal trouble. And I think he flipped. Um, And it was also he got the sign that 
he was being cut loose from Trump financially. And these prosecutions, uh, whether you win them or lose them, they're not loser pays. So it is it could very well destroy your family's finances. Um, so the story that I have taken out of this is that someone had Flynn call Russia and some other countries regarding a UN Security Council resolution related to Israel during the transition. Right. Um, and, you know, they probably could have had Flynn on a lot of other things, including all these lobbyist agreement cover-ups. And if, if you actually look at his face, he just looks evil. So <sighs> I don't know if there's like a charge for generally looking evil, but there you go. So, um, so a lot of reports are saying that the person that he is flipping on is Jared Kushner. And mm -hmm. I'm getting the feeling that that's the highest that this is going to go simply because Jared is not going to flip on his father-in-law, Trump, although he could, by accident, give some evidence that implicates him. He could kind of side flip over to Pence. But he's also in some additional potential trouble because he's been turning over incomplete email records with some things missing um, when he's been in front of Congress. Um, I also note that they reached a deal with Manafort to let him out of his house arrest yesterday. Um, he's put up $11 million in the form of four of his homes. So there's a lot of stuff that's happening right now. And perhaps, you know, this is the diamond in the lump of coal that was 2017. Yeah, finally. It's December. Yep. <laughs> it's time for it to come out now. Right. Maybe you know, maybe um, Mueller went to Jared. I, oh, I see what you did there. That was a diamond yeah. trick. Nicely feel, done. Feel free to cut that. Yeah. <laughs> it's staying in there, my friend. Actually, I noticed on Facebook that somebody had created an advent calendar uh, with mm -hmm. uh, the first day being Flynn. So, you know, who knows mm -hmm. what uh, the rest of the... The days might bring. Uh, I know what we're hoping for for Christmas. I can I can certainly say that. Uh, no matter what your denomination is, I don't want him under my tree, though. <laughs> no, you know it's funny. Somebody on a Facebook group that I moderate pointed out that uh, the one person Obama told Trump not to hire was Michael Flynn. But since Trump was going to do everything counter to what Obama did. He made sure to fire Flynn. So they're like, what if Obama knew that Trump did this, was going to, you know, do this and planted that thought in Trump's head, knowing the outcome that it could dismantle his presidency. So well, that's... Uh, I don't think that Trump is doing three-dimensional chess, but it's possible that Obama was. Exactly. <laughs> well, so Chris, from the activist standpoint... As outraged as people have been over Russia, have you found this to be much of a motivator for activists? Absolutely. We, you know, on the day that Trump fired Comey, I, I literally wanted to stand on the rooftops and start yelling about it. Um, and I have been on fire ever since that day, um, if not before. Um, so absolutely, this is this is a big deal for activists. Um, and anyone who's watching closely, honestly. Yeah. So let's shift over and talk about the GOP tax bill that, uh, as of our recording, is being rewritten. And uh, what do you know? Susan Collins and Jeff Flake and Ron Johnson and some other holdouts have said that they're going to vote for it, even though they don't know what's in it, because nobody does, uh, meaning that they already have the votes needed to pass it. And that 
pretty much tells you everything you need to know about the GOP's real priority here, which is to just pass anything, whatever damage it inflicts on the American people. Uh, Now, a lot has been added to this bill. Uh, We talked a couple weeks back about the ways this bill is destructive on its face, the repeal of the estate tax, the reduction of the corporate tax, uh, the fact that it'll wind up slashing social services down the line. Uh, Oh, Mitch McConnell apparently gave Susan Collins a promise in writing that uh, it wouldn't raise Medicaid. But uh, it's amazing how cheap paper is these days. But anyway, uh, so much more since then has been added. They have included a provision to allow drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to appease Lisa Murkowski. They've added a repeal of the ACA's individual mandate, as Josh alluded to. Uh, The bill would lift a ban on political activism by churches. The House bill confers personhood on fetuses. Uh, As the New York Times headline a couple days ago uh, stated, it started as a tax cut. Now it could alter American life. And I'm like, yeah, you, you think? Uh, and then on Thursday, the Joint Committee on Taxation uh, stated that the bill would add $1 trillion to the debt. This on top of the $1.5 trillion it is overtly adding to the deficit. So um, let's start on the grassroots side of things here. Uh, initially, Chris, the fight didn't seem to have the same sense of urgency that we saw with Trump care. Why do you think that's been? Has it been harder to quantify how the bill would affect people? What do you think? Yeah, I think it was a little bit less visceral at first. Um, and let's be let's just be straightforward here. Like the tax code isn't the most exciting thing to mm. think about. Um, and literally, it wasn't until we saw some of the analysis coming out um, about how just how much it was going to favor the billionaires and Donald Trump himself um, and how little of the tax reform was going to be benefiting just uh, taxpaying Americans. Uh, That's when we started lighting the fire. And then as things progressed further and all the things you mentioned, you know, the the sweeteners or poisoners uh, that they put into this thing that really don't have anything to do with taxes let's just be honest um when they started putting all those things in there then people really started getting involved and understanding what was happening and basically calling out the lies and that was the other difficult thing was not only was it difficult to get an understanding of the bill which is tax code uh but it there was straight straight up lies coming out of the gop you know the gop mouth um and so that that made it really difficult to engage but then once we got a hold of the facts and all of these little horrible details started coming out well that just kind of lit the fire under everybody Well, you know, there are a lot of moving parts to this, and there's a lot of procedure that I think people aren't that familiar with. And so with that, Josh, I'll I'll turn to you because I'm hoping you can help us unpack a couple of things here. Um, First, maybe help explain what happened on the floor of the Senate on Thursday. So Ron Johnson, Jeff Flake, and Bob Corker proposed a so-called tax increase trigger, which the parliamentarian ruled was in violation of the Byrd rule. Uh, Can you kind of help us make sense of what went down there? Sure. Well, as I think everyone realizes by now, this tax plan is going to spiral us into a depression like what we faced in 2008 and 2009. I think it really is that bad. Um, but what happened over the last couple of days is the Senate operates differently from the House. The House is pretty much up or down votes. 
the Senate is a bunch of cranks who can each put a wrench into the process. And in September, Corker negotiated a deal that would limited, limit this tax plan to only, in quotes, a $1.5 trillion debt increase over 10 years. So now he's been pushing for a trigger that would bump taxes back up if they blew a hole in the budget more than $1.5 trillion. Now, the problem with that is these are the same fiscal conservatives, again, in quotes, who always talk about balanced budget amendments. And at the same time, they're fighting against slowing down the plan to increase deficits by up to $1.5 trillion. Now, this is going through reconciliation, which is a bit confusing to people. All, all bills technically need to pass by a simple majority in the Senate. But most bills can be filibustered, so it effectively would need 60 votes. Uh, once it's passed, the Senate has one shot to modify a bill through a reconciliation process, and that has no filibusters. That's why they only need 50 votes here, or 51 votes. Uh, you can Each year, you can have one reconciliation bill for spending, one for revenues, and one for debt limits. And the Byrd rule, which has been discussed, adds to this and says that these reconciliation bills are not supposed to include, I think, what they call extra junk in them. So, Is that the also, technical language? Is that specifically what they call extra yeah, junk? Yeah, yeah they use um, Latin. So junk <laughs> from us. Nice. Um, and it pro prohibits anything that would increase the deficit beyond a 10-year window, which is why tax plans are always 10 years long now. And that's why we had the fight a few years ago over extending or ending the 2001 Bush tax cuts. But so I try to watch all these plans through the lens of what the conservatives end goal is. And they've really captured government since about 1980 and the middle class is doing okay then. Um, but since then the government has been used to transfer the gains of low and middle earning tiers back to the top tier. This bill is a transfer of $5 billion directly from low-wage earners to million-dollar earners, right. just like Reagan tax bills did, just like Bush tax bills did. So my advice for people is to stop whining and just start earning a million dollars a year. <laughs> well, so, so here's what happens next once the Senate uh, version passes. There will need to be a reconciliation between the House and Senate versions. So that begs the question – it's, I mean, it's getting pretty late in the game. What's next in the fight? Do the Democrats have any arrows left in the in the quiver? Is there any way that they can drag this out until the 8th when there's a debt ceiling fight? I, I understand congressional Republicans are now trying to pass a two-week stopgap bill to avert a government shutdown. Chris, do you have any thoughts on what the Democrats can be doing to slow this down? Well, I think I think there's going to be a lot happening in reconciliation. There, like, the two bills don't they don't go together. Um, and I know that, for example, my congressman um, is opposed to the Arctic refuge uh, drilling component that got Murkowski on board. Um, he sent he and 11 other Congress people sent a letter last night and said that they reject that part of the proposal. So I don't really see all these gaps and differences being cleared up next week. Um, and that's just the environmental part, like the the. Uh, the healthcare. Anyone who uh, 
opposed the ACA repeal in the House based on um, the impact on access to health care has got to be fighting against the Senate version as well. So this thing's going to be complicated. I really don't see it getting cleared up next week. Josh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, what do the Democrats have really at their disposal to, to push back right now? Well, I seem to remember, I don't know if this is still operative, but back when we were uh, debating the ACA, one of the Republican senators, and it might have been John Kyle, uh, kept asking for slowdown measures like reading the entire bill out loud and things like that. It doesn't seem that if there are any procedures like this that the Democrats have um, taken advantage of them. But right now, they're, they are going to need the Democrats to vote on the debt ceiling issue as well, because that is not a uh, reconciliation bill, to my understanding. So if they need both sides, then the Democrats can work on that side and just refuse to submit to that vote on the 8th. Can I just say that how disappointed I am in the Senate Democrats for not doing any sort of filibuster. There was no withholding consent. They, that thing just went on the floor for a vote. It was my understanding that Patty Murray had committed to withholding consent. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I don't no, know what happened. Yeah. There. Me neither. And I'm disappointed. Well, they, they can't filibuster it but um, perhaps they could have withheld consent. Well, so before we move away from the tax fight, Chris, I'm wondering what is next for Indivisible in all of this? So we're going to be pressing um, on the House during the reconciliation, um, and there's a lot to work with there. Um, and we're also going to be pressing on the Senate, specifically um, in for blue state senators. Uh, we're going to be asking them to, to attach, actually, we're going to be insisting that they attach a Clean Dream Act to any continuing resolution for the budget. This absolutely must happen to protect the dreamers. So we're going to be pressing on that next week. Excellent. All right. So, look, if, if this bill goes through, it will, as we talked about on our last show, become very serious baggage for anybody running as a Republican in 2018. And Speaking of which, uh, the DCCC's House Majority PAC recently released a poll showing that Republican Dino Rossi, who is running to replace Dave Reichard in the 8th District, trails a generic Democrat 42 to 43%. Um, in the world of politics, what does that generally mean to be losing to a generic opponent, Josh? Is it always a bad indicator? Um, well, the bad indicator here is when an incumbent is below 50%. And even though Reichert is in office, uh, I think that Rossi is considered basically the, the incumbent right now. Kind of a lot like you know, Clinton was running kind of as Obama's third term, Rossi is running as Reichert's eighth term right now. Um, I, I would warn people to be cautious here because Rossi, you know, we know he's kind of a dead fish to us, but he does have his fans. And, you know, there are Republicans out there that resent that he lost the governor's race. It's true they've tried to avenge it twice and failed. Um, but it's still a major change election coming up. And change does include that, that kind of resentment. Absolutely. What I've seen from Rossi, he is, he is clammed up. I, I've asked him several times on his Facebook page whether he's going to vote 
whether he would have voted for this tax plan. And he's gone very quiet for someone who's trying to raise funds right now. The question is going to be when we actually have our one candidate after the top two primary, how that person stacks up right now. And we have several candidates who are more than qualified to step in as a new member of Congress. So even though Rossi doesn't have a specific opponent to demonize yet, uh, right now he is running against Pelosi. And I would take my chances in Trump versus Pelosi any day out here, just like I'll take any of our candidates versus Rossi any day. Well, Chris, how does this inform uh, this poll inform the process of evaluating candidates on the Democratic side for you? Well, we're just focused on trying to find the best progressive candidate uh, who can win the race. Um, I think this is um, an excellent sign that he's Rossi is not polling well against, you know, a Democrat, generic Democrat. Um, But we're just keeping our eye on the prize and trying to find the best the best progressive candidate that that we can find. But here I should mention is where it gets Kind of fun. Uh, Chris, you happen to notice in the fine print there that uh, Rossi was billed as a Trump delegate at the Republican convention. Now, I've been trying to confirm that. And the closest that I can get is that he actively worked to shut down a challenge on the convention floor to Trump being the nominee. But if 2018 is going to be a referendum year on Trump, it doesn't look good. Uh, Am I getting ahead of myself in getting too excited if he's the nominee, Chris? Uh, I was very excited when I read that. I was very excited. I mean, we can hang that around his neck uh, like a like an anchor. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in in the eighth district in Washington, we're, we're not Trump fans here. Uh, no, we're not. Well, certainly not at this household. But uh, Josh, the uh, Democratic presidential candidates have won in the eighth district, right? In the last few cycles, yeah. Uh, Well, definitely the last two cycles based on how the district is currently drawn. And um, now Rossi went to the convention and Washington State Republicans chose a particularly stupid system last year. Uh, They chose who their national delegates were at a convention and they chose 41 delegates. Forty of them were Ted Cruz backers. And then they used the primary to decide which presidential candidate got the delegates. So you had 40 Cruz backers who were all bound to Trump. Um, Dino went to Cleveland as an unbound delegate, but when it was time to join the Washington delegation and forcing a floor vote in the rules, Dino turned on his delegation, refused to sign on. But there are, are a lot of other signs, not just not just that one delegate spot, or not just that one delegate spot. Dino not only found comfort in his own words in the choice of Mike Pence as vice president, but he said that Trump, even though he was a 17th choice out of 17, he was backing Trump rather than putting a, quote, habitual liar and sexual predator into the White House. So, Dino, if you're listening or if your people are listening, we would like to know whether you feel Donald Trump is or isn't a, a habitual liar and a sexual predator. And you don't have to answer me directly, but a quick statement on your Facebook page should be plenty. 
<laughs> there we go. Well, we'll leave that challenge right there uh, for the week. And uh, I think that'll do it for this this week in review for the week of December 1st, 2017. As always, if you guys want to know more about the show, head over to IndivisiblePodcast.org and subscribe while you're there. The email address is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you, Chris Petzold. Thank you. Thank you, Josh Troopin. Stay safe out there. And as always, thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye.